Yep, we are recording. This is the Boundless Possible Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. How are you, my friend? I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm thinking to myself, uh, what number of podcasts are we up to? But I think we're sort of way into the 30s now that it's not even worth mentioning, right? Yeah, I, I think we've given up on episode numbers now with that many in. I think we're talking seasons now, don't we? We do, certainly. Yeah. I think we're up to season four. Anyway, our special guest uh, today is Gary Higgins, the Leader of the Opposition, I believe. Is that right, Gary? Yep, Leader of the Opposition, um, member for Daly. So. Right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Gary. Not a problem. Thanks for coming in, and uh, we'd like to talk to you about your life story and, and what we call here the hashtag territory story, yep. and then uh, anything else that's of interest to you. So would you like to kick it off? Yeah, look, um, you, I'm a New South Wales boy. I was born in Griffith. Oh, yes, Western. far north. Oh, no, no, no Western, Western, right. Out near Wagga, Narendra, Luton, yeah. out, out that way. So grew up there basically till my teenage years. Um, we moved to Sydney. What did your for, parents do out at Griffiths there? Father was a chartered accountant. Right. My mother was a mother. Okay. <laughs> the, um, there's three boys, one girl in the family. Um, we moved to Sydney basically for us kids and education. So I finished my education in... Sydney. Um, I ended up as a, I'm a life member of St Aloysius College Old Boys Union. Uh, There's only yeah. two, only two of us, two of us left, the honorary <laughs> ones. And uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, then uh, Rhonda and I, my wife. So we've been married now nearly. I better work this out right, eh? About, oh, I just want to pause you right there. You've skipped a giant part of your childhood. So, <laughs> when, when did you actually? When did you actually move to Sydney? Um, in the in the sixties, right? If I said so, in the mid sixties, moved to Sydney. And what was that like back then? Um, we first lived at Marrickville, yes, which now mm-hmm. is one of. I, I mean, it went to a really bad area, and then it's actually one of the really. Good areas. Is that where the Marrickville yeah. Maulers come from? Yeah. Yes. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we were only there for a short period. Then we moved to a suburb called Oatley, which is in the southern suburbs. So it's um, on the Georges River. It must be a really down south because I've never heard of that. Yeah. Near, near Hurstville. Yeah, Hurstville. Um, okay. Hurstville, Penshurst, Mortdale, Oatley, and then you go across the river. Um okay. So we lived there. I finished my schooling then at St Aloysius College, which was at Milsons Point. So that's a school straight opposite um, the Sydney Opera House, right next to the Harbour Bridge. Yeah. Mm. Um, sporting prime ball. land. What was that? Bit of prime land. Yeah, a bit of prime land. And I noticed they've still got it now. It's probably one of the richest spots in, in all of Sydney. But um, sporting-wise, swimming, um, did a lot of work with, um, or, or you know, most of my sporting exercise and everything was swimming. Did do some football. Um, 
I've got Royal Life Saving Certificate number 13. So um, I've been involved with them for a while down there, um, in Sydney, that is, and up here. Um, Rhonda and I then met while I was at school, my last couple of years at school, ballroom dancing. Right. So Rhonda oh, and I um, did a lot of ballroom dancing. Um, we've got medals for that. We did um, a lot of displays. Um, I never danced with Rhonda in accreditation. Um, we only ever danced in demonstrations together, but a lot of people said we always should have probably danced together in our accreditations. But um, anyway, so that's how we met. We both had a boyfriend and a girlfriend, but um, we built our own friendship and would um, socialise together and our boyfriend and girlfriend gave us, gave us up. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't like our relationship. But uh, anyway, so we got married in 73 in um, Sydney. Did you, um, did you finish so, school? Yeah, so I finished school in 72. Mm. Um, I then got a cadetship with the Rural Bank of New South Wales, and uh, you'll love this, in computing. So the bank was in the process <laughs> of computerising, um, you know, the, the bank work, you know, the accounting and, you know, the people's money, etc. I was the first one that they had put through as an operator of computer systems. So, so they had some people that they'd trained or were training at the time in just programming. So it was COBOL. I did 12 months as an operator um, when we first converted some of the branches across. Um, in that first 12 months, we did about 12 branches. Um, at the end of that 12 months, I then went into programming um, and the auditors realised that that was the worst thing they'd ever done because if there was ever a problem and I'd got called in in the middle of the night, um, the rest of the operators that knew me would go to sleep. So I'd actually operate the computer and alter all the programs, etc. So you can imagine the auditors weren't real happy with that, someone that then now knew how to operate the computer and uh, do the programming. But anyway, I'd, I'd work my way through with the bank. So you, you could program in COBOL? Yep, I could do COBOL, Fortran, Assembler, um, all goodness, of those. that's um, impressive. Yep, so and I'd be on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you were a computer uh, programmer before it was even a thing. Yep, that, <laughs> that was it. And um, Rhonda kept saying to me, you know, you don't earn enough money, don't you? Can't you tell these people you've got three or four kids? I think it was three at the time. And I said, well, you don't realise how much money I actually earn. I was earning more as a programmer in the early 20s or my, I was in my 20s. Um, I was earning more than the bank managers. Yes. And uh, it was probably wow. six or eight of us. Uh, and you did that on the job training. You didn't actually go to uni to... No, it was, there was no uni course that you yes, could do. It was right, all... Yeah. The computer system was a Burroughs. Yes, I remember that. So Burroughs were a <laughs> supplier of computer equipment to the US Army, and they were in, involved in Vietnam. So we had a lot of uh, threats made of the bank. The Rural Bank then became the State Bank of New South Wales and then merged with a building society. And I think it then got taken over by Westpac. 
I think. Because right. Westpac mm. was formerly the Bank of New South Wales, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. And um, Rhonda had a job with the Bank of New South Wales, so it um, was interesting there. I left the bank um, after about eight years. I and then, you had three kids in the meantime? Four. Four. Yeah, <laughs> so we ended up with four, four sons. So... Um, Are you a good Catholic like Pete? Um, not, not anymore, Pete. Sorry. <laughs> just no, just a Catholic. You don't have to be good anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Rhonda wasn't a Catholic. So when I married Rhonda, the local parish priest refused us. But uh, I went to, the school, went to the school and uh, spoke to the – because it was a Jesuit school. So this was in 73, and they actually said – that's all right, Gary, we'll marry you wherever you want to be married. Um, so if you think of 73, it was, you know, we'll even do it on the front lawn of your house. But in the end, we ended up being married at um, Sydney Uni, the Chapel of the Resurrection at Sydney University. Oh. And uh, Rhonda was Presbyterian. Her mother wanted her to be married in a Presbyterian church. So we actually got married by both the Catholics and the mm. Presbyterians together. So if you imagine that back in 73, it was probably unheard of. Yeah, very the, progressive. Yeah, then in a chapel that really was a non-denominational uh, chapel. So, but anyway, but anyway, I ended up leaving the bank. I can't remember what, what year. I did a short stint with a finance company that back in those days, to give you an, an example of what the stuff that we were computerising, at one point I said to them, I said, well, You've shown me page two of this letter that we've got to print out. Where's page one? And they said, read page two, Gary. And page two basically said, as you can see from page one, you know, we hold the auction on your front lawn. Um, we have to leave you with a, you know, a chair and one light bulb or something or other. And I said, yeah, yeah, I've read that. So where's page one? They said, there isn't a page one. So <laughs> finance companies were a bit... Mm, um, ruthless. Ruthless in those those days but anyway so i didn't stay there for long and rothman's the cigarette company had um advertised for someone that wanted to look at computerizing manufacturing um so i actually joined rothman's not knowing anything about manufacturing but um had a lot of skills in designing computer systems and in those days you did everything you did all your databases everything you you did the whole lot um, so in Rothman's, what I did there was introduced the first MRP system, which is Materials Requirements Planning Systems, that had never they'd never introduced anything like this in Australia, as far as we could we could track down. Honeywell gave us a lot of um, help with it. So how those systems work is that you you would get what are the you know, the contents of a single cigarette and then into a packet, etc. And you knew all the lead times to get your printing done, to buy your tobacco, all of that. And then your marketing people would say, this is how many we're going to sell over this period for the next two or three years. And from that, you could then work out what materials you needed to be delivered at what time um, so that you weren't carrying a lot of stock. So I did a lot of work with... Um, with that, we got that system up and running. I then did a lot of work in New Guinea with uh, Rothmans, implementing the system up there. I did a lot of work through Southeast Asia with the companies they had there. I wasn't quite 30 when I then got flown to 
um, the UK by Rothmans. I'd never been out of Australia. Um, I got my passport in less than a half a day. The other half a day was spent getting a visa into the United States because we were coming back through the States from the UK. Um, and then I got on my first overseas trip, travelling first class <laughs> with Qantas. <laughs> and, um, so that was um, an exciting time. Um, the software that we then developed, we ended up selling to TNT and they ran it on all of their their boats that travelled around Australia. So it was um, basically looking after their stock. But um, anyway, so that was that was that with Rothmans. Um, we had, had bought a family property at Yass, then 3,000 acres. Um, well, if I say we bought it, it was actually my father had bought it. My older brother was then going to run it. He'd worked on the land all his life. Um, and basically the family wanted me to go down there with, with them, everyone together sort of thing. So we moved to Yass and I joined a company called Logica. Um, so Logica was then doing a lot of um, developing of computer systems around, I think it was the Costigan Royal Commission and and they set up a, a database of linking different people together, people's people of interest. So if you were at a restaurant um, and there was a known criminal there, that link was um, put into the system. And then if it was a repeating link, you know, you became more a person of interest associated with those, those criminals. So that was being done then. So I'm talking now the early 80s, I think. Um, but anyway, I with Logica, I did some work with that system, but the main thing I did was with the Royal Australian Mint. So in the early 80s, the Mint in Canberra stopped annealing its own blanks, which were the... So they had a furnace, etc., that made the blank coins, which were basically like a washer without a hole in it. And they gave that contract to South Korea, and there was a big uproar about you know, losing this, you know, manufacturing out of Australia and um, the government at the time decided that they'd do a management review of the Mint um, and I was then brought in to the Mint then to actually look at all their computerisation. So... This is why you were with Logica? Yep. Right. But so Logica, where were they based? They're an English company. Right. Um, they were doing a lot of work with that in the criminal area, so the linking of, of people, that was their, their forte. In, in It was sort of um, well, verging on artificial intelligence, going around and doing all this linking. Yeah. You know, the more information you fed into the system, the, the more connections it would come up with, and, and that was that. And it's the starting point of what all of the police forces have around Australia, which is you know, this person's of interest mm. database that's now being used extensively, I think, with facial recognition. So this is where the, the next stage of that sort of system came from. But primarily in Canberra, if I said I I did 90% um, of my work at the Mint in Canberra, designing their computer systems there and computerising the Mint. Um, but where was your office? So the office, they had a very small office in Canberra. 
and we worked on site. So you're basically mm. on site. Um, so you lived in Yass and lived in Yass and commuted to Canberra. Yep. So I'd drive the fifty to sixty <laughs> kilometres in the right. Canberra, um, which I referred to as the cemetery with the lights turned on. Uh, <laughs> especially back then, it was pretty dead. Um, again, my wife was complaining that I didn't earn enough. Um, <laughs> You're good at that, hiding it, Gary. Yeah, I know. And I said to her, I said, "Well, there's not at the time. I think so. This is the early '80s." Um, I was earning about $65 an hour. Jeez. So wow. computer people were very yeah. highly regarded. Um, you worked long hours too, but when you're paid by the hour, that yeah. was, was good anyway. A bit like lawyers, I suppose. Oh, but, no, we don't, we don't <laughs> make as much as you I didn't want to make the job myself, so thank you for doing <laughs> that, Gary. Yeah, you're already on thin ice, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Logica also had involvement here in the Territory and their involvement was actually recruiting computer people to come up and join the computer industry here in the Northern Territory. Which is with the government. Yeah, so the government on behalf of, of government. Um, and, you know, so I was aware of this, so I actually put my hat in the ring um, and came up and... Uh, the early 80s, it would have been 84 or 85, and did an interview. They had trouble finding me at the airport, and uh, I had to page the guy, a fellow by the name of Ray Allwright, who owned Wimray Tours up here, but he was the head of ENCOM oh, at yes. the time. Um, Does ENCOM still exist? No. no. <laughs> I haven't heard that name in a while. But anyway, I had trouble finding me at the airport anyway, so I ended up paging Ray all right, and he came to me and he said, I would never have picked you, Gary, as the person to come up here. And I said, why is that? And he said, you're dressed like the rest of us. But previously I said I did a lot of work in New Guinea, so oh, I knew right. what the tropics were. Well, hang on. Um, you didn't mention New Guinea at all in your story. With Rothmans, yeah, no, I did. Oh, with yeah, you did, you yeah. did. Yep. So um, I can verify so that. Yeah, so we ended up moving up here, Rhonda and I, four, four kids. Um, if I said, I think it was March 85, um, we spent about eight weeks living at the Darwin Hotel. Um, where the heck is that? Where, oh, there. Like yeah, the hotel, the, yeah. Um, before it was ripped down in the middle of the night. Yeah. Um, three of the kids went back to school. Up here, the fourth one was too young to go to school. Uh, eventually, we had a house at Nakara. We were there for, oh, if I said, 18 months, and we ended up then buying a house out at Howard Springs. But when our last son went back to school, my wife went, she'd um, done some work as early childhood um, assistant teacher, you might say. So she went back to uni as a or to uni as a um, mature student and did a teaching degree up here after the first year she got a scholarship. I said to her that she could do that course, provided nothing changed at home. <laughs> but I can tell you that, yeah, we distributed the workload between the two of us with the four kids. So you, so she, you were still working for Logica at that stage? or No, no, I'd taken a job with government. Mm. I was then, uh, so I was with NCOM working through there for... So I said two years, mm. and then Peter Conran, who was the head of Attorney Generals, 
um, wanted me to go across and work for them, and that was to implement IGIS, which oh, is yes. the, the Justice Information System. So um, I claim no responsibility for the design of it, just in case people... <laughs> but, yes, my name is all over IGIS. I did design IGIS and were, was basically responsible for the implementation of it. Um, but I took a job with Attorney Generals then, but in that process I was given as well as the computing side, so looking after IGIS and, and Promise. Um, I then had to look after all of the corporate affairs areas, so all of their finance, um, the whole lot, as well as anti-discrimination and the Legal Aid Commission. Um, I was then involved, oh, the public trustees was another one. Um, we eventually also had consumer affairs. Peter Condren had moved to the Department of Chief Ministers um, and it was Meredith Harrison who was the head of Attorney Generals and she came to me one day and said, Gary, we need you to um, look after consumer affairs for a while. And I said, how long's a while? And she said, three months. Um, so I said, what about my current job? And she said, oh, no, you can keep that as well. <laughs> so I had two different offices, two different buildings, um, and the two secretaries didn't get on with each other, which made it very hard to control the, <laughs> the diary, etc. Um, Please tell me you got double the pay for your wife's sake. No, I didn't. I didn't get a pay rise at all. <laughs> I mentioned it to Meredith. She said, you're overpaid now. <laughs> <laughs> The um, after two years in that position, I just had enough. I um, went in. We've been away on holidays. I went in and saw at that stage. I can't remember a name now, but Meredith had left. Um, I'll think of a name later. Um, and I said, "Look, I'm not not staying. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave." She said, "You got two years on your contract," and I said. Um, speak to my lawyers <laughs> I said, I'm out of there. so we actually left that was Rhonda had done her 10 years teaching and um i just had enough i think of everything you know the kids had grown up left left home all still in darwin um and we went down and bought the daily river mango farm wow um which wow. was a complete complete change so it was um didn't had some hundred year old mango trees and then we planted another two and a half thousand mango trees. The, I hate mangoes now, but anyway, <laughs> also had a you know the caravan park, it had a licensed bistro, it had accommodation, everything, and we were there for um 16 years. Wow, um, in the towards the end of that 16 years, I found myself always being involved with um the locals would come to me, it's, you know, and say, you know, we've got a problem with this, can you speak out? So I was very um, outspoken through the media um, on behalf of a lot of the locals in the area down there. Um, I was Daly very, River, Daly River. Yeah, mm. so you'd got that whole area from Daly River, you know, through Pepmanati, Palumpa, Wadai, right. all of that area there. Um, we were on the western side of the river. We'd get cut off for six months of the year, mm -hmm. so the only way in and out was by boat. And I said for 
5,000 people lived on that side of the river and the only way they could get across that river was to come in and see me. So for basically all of that 16 years, I'd ferry them across, back and forth across the, the river. The croc-infested croc river. Yeah, the croc-infested <laughs> river. And um, never ever charged them. And uh, they all got to know me, um, even though I didn't know all their names, they all definitely knew who I was. Um, I also got involved when they brought in all the land clearing legislation, so that was Claire Martin's government, um, and got put on a reference group that looked at the Daly River and continued on that group looking at all of the, the issues, not around land clearing, because it was obvious from the first meeting of that group that the issue was water. Um, so I was involved in that group right until I was elected. As in, in not enough water? Yep, not enough water. Um, Why is that? If they wanted to take it for irrigation, um, et cetera, the thing was if you allowed land clearing, how much water have you got to use to irrigate to grow crops? Right. So the issue, of course, was that the Daly River in the wet season, huge volumes, but dry season, no. There's, the water's not there and that's when you need to, to irrigate. So that was the big issue with that. So I became outspoken about that as well, I suppose. People might say I'm a greenie and in the wrong party. But <laughs> being, um, I but I'm was sounding like that. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, those, someone came and asked me if I'd go into politics. Um, I said to Rhonda, what do you think? She said, well, we can always say no. So it was actually two years out from the election. Yeah. Um, Which, what year was this? 2010. Right, it would have okay. been. Yeah. So then, so basically, I was a candidate for over two years. At all of the different stages, I'd say to Rhonda, "What do you think?" She said, "Well, you can still say no." You know, they have all these. You know, like you put in an expression of interest. You know, you put in your resume, you go through the interviews, etc. Anyway, when they finally did their final selection, I won't say what Rhonda said, but I did. <laughs> ring her up and she didn't say you can always say no it was something else but it was like <laughs> you know i think this is getting too late um but anyway so that was that so i did get pre-selected um and then ended up For which being this? Daily. daily so it goes daily. from uh, everything on the other side of the harbour right here is in daily it goes all the way down to just north of catherine so i've got gosh that's um, huge then it goes out to i've got Wagite, Bellevue and Dundee, um, you've got Wadai, Daly River, Adelaide River, Bachelor, Palumpa, Peppermanati. So a lot you of got, Indigenous communities in that yes, seat, uh, seat. It makes up about, uh, or they make up about 52, 53% of the voters. Wow. That electorate. Um, I get roughly 70% of the Indigenous vote. That's incredible. Um, and it's because of the 16 years, knowing them and, yes. uh, yeah. and and that's it. They just referred to me as old man. It was always a worry about how do they know who to tick on the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, but anyway, they, they know. Um, I got involved with emergency services down there. There was you know, people getting lost all the time, boats you know, not coming home at the night time. Um, floods. I ended up being the unit officer, so a volunteer with emergency services down there. So I was a unit officer for over 10 years down there with them. 
um, I chaired the land care group down there called the Wangamati Land Care Group. Um, the Malik Malik's are the people that own the banks and bed of the river down there. Um, I negotiated a Section 19 lease with them and, you know, people talk about Section 19 leases nowadays and we had one around the year 2000. It was probably one of the first ones that was that was done. Um, we continued with that all the way through. It was a specific lease with just Rhonda and I. When we sold the property, the land council said, look, that's really um, good. Um, we'll let you pass it on, seeing we've had such a good relationship wow. with you. So, um, so I've got a very good connection with Indigenous people. Um, from a political point of view, under the Giles government, I was probably the only person that ever spoke to the land council and had a very good relationship with Joe Morrison when he was there. He used to be with Nailsma, which was the water people. Um, so in the water issue, I had a lot to do with him. Sammy Bush, who's the chairman there, he um, his grandkids are from out around the Daly area. Um, so I've known Sammy for quite some time. I treat the two of them as friends. Um, Joe Martin Jard, who's currently the CEO of the Central Land Council, was all very much involved with um, the water issue around mm. Daly River. He was working for government at the time. Mm. So I've got a very good relationship with them. When we talk about people in politics, um, Paul Henderson worked for me when I was working for ENCOM. He's so right. Um, Natasha what? Griggs, um, I was her first boss when she was working <laughs> for ENCOM. Paul Henderson's wife was Stacey Baker, who also worked for me, Kate Warden, the current member for Sanderson, worked for me in <laughs> Sorry. consumer affairs. So what are, you, are you telling me that all these politicians were computer geeks before they became politicians? Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so Paul Henderson was a computer operator, Natasha Griggs and uh, Stacey Baker, who now is Stacey Henderson, were database designers. Um, Kate Warden um, was working in consumer affairs. Um, so she's not a computer geek. And then you've got Eva Lawler, who was in the department when I was the minister. So there are all of these people. Um, other connections I have there is that Natasha Files' husband used to come and have sleepovers with our kids when they were growing up. So he's the same age <laughs> as our kids. Um, so I could go on and on and on. The um, other connection, of course, is that Stacey Baker, so Paul, Henderson's wife, her father, Tom Baker, was very senior in the police force. He was a Griffith boy, so he grew up in uh, Griffith, and then I reconnected with him in Tennant Creek. He was the senior sergeant down there. They ended up living two doors down from us at Howard Springs. Um, so quite often I would talk to Paul over the back fence when they'd go for a walk with... Um, him and Stacey, etc., and then um, Joy Baker, so Tom's wife, Stacey's mother, was then the admin um, lady at Sacred Heart where my wife taught. So there was a lot of, so there's a lot of connections. So when you sort of talk about people in the territory, that's how close yes. a lot of them mm -hmm. are. Um, that's the one degree of separation we talk about, Leon. 
That's right. Yeah. That's right. The um, the first meeting I ever had in Parliament um, after I got um, pre-selected was with Terry Mills, and it's in the office that I currently have. And Terry said, "So, what are you going into politics for? Do you want my job?" Terry <laughs> <laughs> said that is security. <laughs> I said, to him, no, "No, no, it's your job, Terry." Anyway, when Terry actually resigned from Parliament last time, I did stand up in Parliament and I actually finished that story and actually said what I actually thought was who, who in hell's name would ever want to be the opposition leader. So you've got to be careful what you actually say. So I did say that in Parliament when Terry actually resigned. Um, <laughs> and then after the last election, it was like, well, here we go. What am I now, the opposition leader in that, <laughs> same, that same office? But... We were, we, we were actually sitting here imagining what it was like on the fourth floor with just you and Leah and, you know, it must have been a huge office and we could just, you know, we were picturing just two of you there, you know, cooey. <laughs> Indoor cricket game, footy, <laughs> hold it. The leader of the opposition's office is, is basically exactly the same size as a minister's office. So, yeah, yeah. And you basically have the same number of staff. Um, there's one office in there for the leader of the opposition. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's it. Um, but I made the decision and, and spoke with Leah about it from the very start, and that was, yes, there was only ever two of us. So we always, or our aim was always to have one of us in that office um, the five days a week. Um, so we actually do share the office um, and that's it, even though Leah also has the title of whip and she then has her own private office downstairs that she uses then when um, we're actually sitting in Parliament. So, so who does she, she's only got one person to whip. Yeah, that's, 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 that's me. How does that work from a logistical point of view, Gary? Do, do you all hold 28 portfolios each? Yeah, yeah, we divide them down down the middle. Um, the, the, the thing is that when there's two of you, I mean, it's very democratic. We get a vote each and the leader gets the deciding vote. Um, but if I said we always, we've never ever had to go to a vote. <laughs> I mean, we usually sort things out. Um, I suppose so, yeah. then with the with the rest of my family, what happened with our four boys yeah. was um, our eldest son married a, a teacher up here that had come from Queensland. Um, they ended up moving to Queensland. Right. Um, our second son and our fourth son, both uh, our second son became a cabinet maker but um, ended up joining the police force. Um, and so our fourth son, both of them joined the police force, both both got married, all three of those have got kids. So we've got um, nine grandkids, I think, and one more on the on the way. Um, number two son then ended up, he couldn't take the police force anymore. He left. The number four son got the police officer of the, ward, of the year award a couple of years ago. Um, he's still in the police force. Um, number three son, Joshua, is, is gay. He was better known up here as Catherine Gorge 
that was a drag queen hmm. around here. Did you uh, ever met uh, Pete? Yeah, yeah, because I, I know a few of those guys through my DJing days. Yep. So Catherine Gorge was was um, our son. So I yeah I know a few of the drag queen ones. I'm a lusty and uh, a few of the <laughs> others. But um, anyway, so he's also in in Queensland. Um, he joined Qantas. Did a lot of travelling around the world as a steward with with Qantas, and then um, yeah, he gave all of that away he's now in um queensland and he works with unemployed and um you know unfortunate kids and ha teaches them cooking wow so and wow. Uh, with a group of or, or with a group of about three or four others so he he does that he loves his cooking he's a qualified educator um from his time in Qantas. so he he does that when you look at then our grandkids, so our first grandchild was a, a girl, um, Shay. She is up here. She's now 23. Um, then we had seven grandsons after that. So you've got four, <laughs> four sons. You've got one granddaughter and seven grandsons. So she wasn't spoilt much. Um, <laughs> and then we've only just had... Um, another girl, which was our ninth grandchild, and we've got another one on the way, and we don't know what that one will be. And so this all point. of them up here in Darwin? No, there's um, three of them are south. Yeah, where, where in? In Brisbane. In Brisbane, yeah. right. Okay. So, um, and that's it. But, yeah, so there we go. Yeah, and and, and so, here I am today. <laughs> and, and so... Rhonda, uh, she she travels back and forth between here and Brisbane, or do you know? You no, no, no. Well, we um, have never ever been on a separate holiday. Right. We always um, go everywhere together. Um, all functions, everything, all the political things, we always go as a as a team. Mm -hmm. um, the advantage we've got over a lot of the members of Parliament is that all our kids have grown up. Yeah. Um, so we can afford the the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if I travel into interstate, if Rhonda's got an invite, she'll come with me. If she hasn't got an invite, I'll still take her with me. Right. Um, it's. I, I think one of the biggest dangers with politicians, and that from a marriage point of view, is that um, if if you spend all of that time separate mm. and everything, you just to me, you just sort of drift apart. Yeah. yeah. Um, like I said, we've been married only forty-seven years. I'm just trying to work. Jeez. Out. 40, wow. Forty-seven years. Um, and I think, yeah, we just do everything together. Yeah. Um, and that's it. Yeah. She's it, my biggest critic. You're right. It's yep. Lynn <laughs> was on this podcast a few months ago. Yep. And remember, Pete, he was describing that story about being in Canberra and watching one of the politicians sort of having dinner all by himself after a function. And Yeah. Yeah, it's a very lonely it's, life. Yeah, I mean, the people think that it's a great life travelling around, and uh, I can tell you it's not. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it can be lonely. Where do you go? How do you eat? What, what, what do you do? Who do you talk to? Um, you get pretty... 
you know, it wears a bit thin speaking to other politicians. It wears a bit thin speaking to your own staff that are with you. You know, the, the um, you know, you just want some time on your own or whatever. It's very hard to communicate on a phone. Mm. It's worse for federal politicians. You know, they're spending six months of the year basically away from, mm. from home. Mm. Um, federally, yeah, if I, it would be very hard for me to to go into federal politics. I'd want to have Rhonda with me all the time. So, mm, mm. Barnaby know. didn't just, mind it. Hey? Barnaby, Barnaby didn't mind it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. But, yeah. <laughs> the, um, you can understand, I think, yeah, it becomes very, yeah, like politicians. It's Canberra Parliament is, you know, a city of its own. It's, you know, three, three and a half thousand mm. people. Mm. And... Uh, most of those people are away from home. It's not a job I'd want. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I mean, listening to your story, which I must say is fascinating, and I can't believe that you were one of the pioneers of uh, <laughs> of computer programming in this country. Uh, it sounds to me like you could have you could have taken that career to the US or the UK and made squillions and, uh, you know, not looked back, but you, you came up to the NT instead. Yep. What was like, what, why? Um, well, we originally came for two years um, and then just fell in love with the place. Um, got to meet some really nice people. It was very different back then. It was, um, you could only get a, you know, a red can, a green can or a light white can, I think, with a, colours you couldn't get any draft beer or your milk was you know sort of powdered milk um you learnt to sleep at the night time with the fan going flat out <laughs> in a lather of sweat um but the rest of the time it was um we just enjoyed it the exploring we enjoyed the fishing um all of that and with four boys yeah. you can imagine them then in their teenage years so that sort of kept us occupied and then they all got girlfriends and everything and I I suppose it became hard to leave but when we'd go back um, to you know Sydney or Yass it seemed they were in a they'd stayed frozen in time and we changed our views and our outlook Um, I suppose you could say it's so multicultural up here and uh, stuff like that but um, yeah, it was. Yeah, we we just couldn't go back. Um, I think one of the things that finally finished all of that for me was both of my parents then were killed in a car accident at the same time. Gosh! And that uh-huh. and Rhonda's mother had, had passed away, so there was only Rhonda's father. Um, and then at the same time, he decided he'd move um, up here as well. So we had Rhonda's father with us as well up here. So it meant we really had no family down there other than our, you know, brother and brothers and, and sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was it. So I think um, that sort of changed our views. Our, our views then on life today have been very much moulded by the, the fact we got very badly flooded in 2011 and, um, you know, I sort of said to Rhonda, oh, don't worry about it while I'm dialing the police saying, well, you know, I headed emergency services. Can you guys send another boat over so we can get out? So um, can I just ask you a very odd question there? Yep. When you get flooded in the Daly River region, 
do you get crocs like um, <laughs> coming through your front door? <laughs> yeah, well, I have a lot of photos. Of, we also did the weather for the Weather Bureau and uh, you used to have to go out. It was a climate station, so we'd actually go out. You used to start at 3 a.m. in the morning. So the first reading I'd do was 3 a.m. and then 6, 9, 12, etc. But I'd go out in gumboots with a shotgun when you were walking <laughs> through a a foot of water getting out to the to the weather station. So um yeah, that I was gonna ever... help you? Hey. Was that was a shotgun gonna help you? It would always scare them. It wouldn't kill them, but you know, they they didn't like getting shot by a shotgun. <laughs> so they tend to jump about six, four, eight foot out of the water and then take off. But <laughs> and usually you do it the opposite direction. And... <laughs> that's that's presupposing that you've actually seen it first, isn't it? Yeah, that's presupposing <laughs> and clearly you live to tell the tale yeah yep but um i think we we lost everything in that in that flood it was about a meter deep through most of the buildings everything and uh it's changed our view on on uh personal possessions and and stuff you know people talk about the cyclone and losing everything um you know in a flood it's exactly the same and, you know, there was just nothing, all our photos, everything gone. Um, when we sold the farm and moved to Acacia Hills, um, I think the best thing for us was that we sold the farm, basically walk in, walk out, mm. which meant when we moved to the new place, we didn't have any furniture. So mm. we had to buy new, new furniture. Mm. Everything. Um, so you moved from the Daly River Mango Farm to, yep. to where? Acacia Hills. Right. So Rhonda and I in our whole life had never built right. a house. Right. So we looked for a block to build a house and we couldn't find one. Um, so Acacia anyway, Hills, is that before afternoon or morning? After. So you know Gosh. where the, uh, near where, near the abattoir. Right. Oh, in, in from there. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we ended up. There was a house got advertised. It was a brand-new house on 20 acres, never been lived in. Anyway, we went and had a look at that, and uh, we ended up buying that. So, um, and I'll say brand-new, I mean brand-new. So what, what, why? What happened to the owners? Well, that's what I said. <laughs> apparently, she was handed the keys. The building had been finished, handed the keys. She went home and saw her husband and said, look, you know, the house is ready. We can move in whenever we want. And he said, oh, I've been down there a couple of times. It's a long way. <laughs> you know, so maybe we don't move. So they didn't. I said, are they still married? And he said, yeah, they are. <laughs> but the house had, or the block had nothing. It was a complete virgin block. Um, you know, there wasn't a driveway. There was nothing around the house, just mud and gamba grass. But um, so we spent the last sort of four years five years doing all the gardens. So I'm glad I didn't actually build a brand new house because (laughs) I'm having enough trouble keeping up with the gardens, let alone having design problems with a house. But uh, And how do you do that with your day job? um, My wife does most of it or (laughs) organises people to come and do it. So um, I love a day on my own out there. I'd, I'd like to just get in and just lock the gate. Um, and not go out on a day, and you you get usually one one of those a fortnight. Um, I love veggie gardening when um, 
ever since when Rhonda and I first got married and I was doing shift work as an operator in that first 12 months, I'd, I'd come home and uh, might be four o'clock in the morning and in Sydney it'd be light mm. in summertime. So I actually converted the whole backyard of a suburban backyard to a veggie garden and I'd stay out in the veggie garden until Rhonda had sort of got out of bed. I think we had one child, then our eldest one, and uh, that was it. And ever since then, my grandfather loved gardening. I'd just find gardening relaxing. Mm. So I've got a great big veggie garden out there. Rhonda calls it her veggie garden, but it's my thought. Mm. Um, I've got a very big orchard. And I've got, I love citrus, so I've got just about every citrus tree known to mankind. Mm. Um, I refused to have a mango tree planted there, <laughs> but Rhonda smuggled a couple from the farm without telling them and stuck them in the ground. Mm. So you've got beautiful um, bone mangoes there. Yeah, so I've got some bone mangoes there, but anyway, so that's, um, yeah, there. Right, right. And so, like, work wise, I mean, to, honestly, I don't really know what goes on there these days. I sort of try to keep in touch, you know, every now and then. But, uh, I mean, what kind of uh, things have you sort of felt have gone well, like, you know, in terms of your contribution to the legislative process and all that type of thing? You um, mentioned water a lot. I think um, there's two two things that I've always been proud of doing. One was um, under the previous government, I was very outspoken about some of the alcohol policies. I've always supported the banned drinkers registry in some way, shape or form. I, mm. I don't necessarily or I don't agree that how we're doing it at the moment is is correct. But I've always had that stand. The first motion I ever moved in this parliament was that we should work as a parliament to address the alcohol problems <coughs> yeah. that we've got. Um, I do a lot of work with Natasha on that. And um, you know, while some people think we have completely different views, I I sort of say everyone in Parliament is there for the same reason. We just mm. have different ways of getting to that in, end result. Mm. Um, but with the alcohol one, there is you know a couple of sticking points there. But in the majority, I you know I think it's a problem that we have to address here in the territory. Mm. And um, some people in the political arena think that you should always attack government mm. or, you know, the other side, have mm. opposite views. I sort of go, well, no, sometimes we're workers, territorians. Mm. Um, as a minister, one of the big decisions that I made, the previous government had, had done a lot of work in the area of getting rid of advisory committees, et cetera, et cetera. In the last six months of the previous government, I became the water minister and they knew I had some very strong views in that area mm. because of the Daly River mm. group. Um, one of those views was around an Indigenous reserve. Mm. Um, I held that view. I even spoke publicly about that at the time, mm. critical of the government. I even spoke about that in Parliament, critical of the government at the time. Um, but what I did as the Minister was a thing, and if you, if, if you speak to people in the department and some that actually look at it, what I did was there was an exemption for the amount of water that people could pump, and it was if you pump less than 15 litres a second in an area surrounding Darwin, mm. um, you didn't need a water licence. Mm. The biggest problem that government had was that they didn't really know how much water was being used. Yeah. So I actually removed 
that exemption, and that exemption had been in place since the beginning of the Water Act, I think, which was back in the early 90s. Mm. So I actually removed that exemption mm. at the time, mm. um, and that exemption is, it, it will never, ever come back, but people will tell you that was a very brave minister that did that. The other thing I did was put a freeze on the number of aquifers that were put in, mm. the, the number of bores that were put into the, Berry Springs Aquifer. Yes, because that's, that's gone down low, quite low, hasn't it? Yeah. And, um, you know, at the time I got a lot of criticism from my own party yeah. over that decision and, and still cop some criticism mm. of that to this day. Mm. Um, but I think when you look back, you sort of go, well, that was an opportunity for someone to do it. Mm. And that opportunity probably wouldn't, have, wouldn't ever come up Again, I mean, I'd, even if the Labor Party were there at the moment and those things were still in place, I don't think they would mm. do what I did then, even though it was the right thing to do and still to this day it's the right thing to do and, and it's proven to be correct. Mm. Can I just ask you like a, a yep. segue question to that? Do you believe in water diviners? No. <laughs> Like blue, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> because people just swear by them, you know, yeah, and I, I, it's, I, it's, um, yeah, no, I don't on General Business Day and uh, Delia Laurie, the opposition leader at the time, went ballistic that I'd moved a motion on their day. And I said, well, no, it's not your day. It's it's General Business Day. So Mm. if I want to move a motion as a private member, I will do it. Mm. And, And I did it. And that motion was to look at the feasibility of doing a gas pipeline from Tennant Creek across to Mount Isa. Right. And that eventuated as the Gemini yes, yes. pipeline. And if people go through the people that spoke on that motion, I think just about every person in Parliament spoke on it and it was unanimously voted by everyone, by government and opposition, and it did eventuate in that pipeline. So what made you decide to do that? Um, I was involved in some of the negotiations around the original pipeline. I was with Attorney Generals when they did the original pipeline from um, E&I and that out and the one up the centre. So I knew a bit about what some of the longer term possibilities were with that. And to me, it was just the the next step. Right. Um, So if someone said, well, what are the most you've done? Well, there you go in Parliament. There's three different different things. Well, Gary, I have to say, um, I, I'm quite, um, I'm, I'm quite intrigued because normally when you have a politician on, you know, that you bring in to talk, they they get have quite, uh, you know, strong, strident views about things. They certainly look for every opportunity to bash the other side and all that, and and you certainly don't come across that way at all. In fact, I'm sitting here questioning whether. You're actually a COP guy, even. <laughs> so some of your views, are, you know, I mean, that, that, that your your connection with the indigenous population and all that type of thing. You, it, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people 
I mean, Pete and I have these conversations all the time. I think there are a lot of these days, certainly, that we don't think there is a thing that a left and a right as such. There's more, it's, it's more esoteric than that. I think there's a lot of people that have conservative views that uh, are quite liberal in a lot of other areas um, and, and, and vice versa. Uh, I mean, I'm, I've got good mates um, that I talk to that are heavily involved in, in Labour Party politics. And uh, I sometimes say to them, are you sure you guys are Labour? Because you don't sound like it, you know? Yeah. So, <laughs> it's, um, I, sometimes I think you've just got to do things for the Territory as opposed to your political party. And if you, if you think about political parties, my view is that you've, You've got a political party that might have five or six hundred members. We get one hundred and twenty thousand voters mm. in the territory. Are they really a true representation of of all of those people? So you need to listen to everyone. And and the thing is that sometimes they they may, in actual fact, not have you know complete view of the, the territory and what it actually needs. Yeah. So in some ways, your political parties, to me, you just don't follow them blindly. Um, when you go to a place like Canberra and you lobby, um, you know, as much as the Labor government here keeps saying, Gary, speak up for us down there and contact your mates. Um, I go down to Canberra and uh, I've always held the view that a politician from Darwin mm. should be in Canberra every time Parliament in Canberra is sitting yes. and we're not sitting. Yeah. And they should be, we get a pass that gets yeah. us around Parliament. You can just walk into a minister's office, the reception area, and and try and get meetings. We, you know, you've yeah. got to do the right thing and set yeah. up your formal meetings, but you'll quite often bump into people, even down to, you know, I bumped into the Prime Minister one day, um, wasn't the current one, it was a previous one, and he said to me, Gary, he said, oh, you know, good to see you down here again. He said, so we're going to meeting sort of today or tomorrow. And I said... No, Malcolm, so that's who it was. I said, your staff said you haven't got time. He just said, rubbish, we'll have 10, 15 minutes tomorrow and turned to his staff and said, make that meeting happen. Good. So you get to, so to be down there, you can get that done. Yeah. Um, you, you speak as a Territorian, yeah. Ken Bowles. And I've got a lot of time for, for Ken. Yeah. Um, he got elected the same time as, as I did, but Ken and I keep in contact with each with each other even when he was you know minister and every everything i mean yeah um, we just talk to each other about politics in general and can trust each other etc but he came to me and he said gary i just can't get any meetings with you know primary industries minister and that down there you know sort mm. of thing but we need to yak through a few things you know can you see what you can do right so ken and i actually went down together Right, and I had all the appointments, and I took him in right. to the meetings and introduced him as the as the minister and the uh, yeah. Oh. There was a few eyes opened up, like, yeah. but isn't he the other? Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, we're here as Territorians. So, um, so I think if you say, well, what do you put first, the territory or your political yeah. party? Yeah. I definitely put the territory yeah. first. Well, Luke, Luke said something very similar, didn't he, Pete? Yeah, he did. Um, just in that similar vein, in in that, because uh, I'm quite an avid listener of Question Time, um, and he said, "Look, you know, that's a bit of a, sh uh, you know, show and dance for the cameras and that." But 
said, the reality is we all get along very well. And he, he didn't show it to us, but he said, oh, I've just had a couple of texts from Tony Abbott this morning about something they were laughing about and they all get along quite well. Yeah, in Parliament here, it's exactly the same. We get on quite well. And one of the one of the ironies of, of staff that look after politicians is that um, if I want to get a meeting with Natasha, say, um, or Michael, um, you know, you you do it the right way. You do it through their office, yeah. et cetera, and you get briefings and, and, and so forth. But the ministers are never there. The staff don't let you meet with the ministers. Mm. But the irony of all of that is when Parliament sits, there's no strangers allowed on the floor. So what you've got to do is it's out of camera sight. Sit in the gallery and see how many politicians from opposite sides are sitting in the chairs at the back having having discussions. And uh, while some of the minders that we have with our ministers, etc., and both sides of politics, don't get me wrong, um, you know, think that they've got to protect their minister from all of this stuff, need to realise the reality of things. And uh, and that's that. I can honestly say if I ring any of the, any of the ministers on on, you know, the government side, guaranteed I'd get a phone call back if they didn't accept the phone call mm. straight away. Um, yeah. yeah. Look, can I ask you a question about ScoMo? Yep. So one of the things that, uh, you know, one of the perceptions that is, is developing here, I think, in the Territory at the moment is that um, we, we get the feeling that ScoMo is... Kind of, he doesn't really have a good impression of the NT, and uh, he's not really interested in spending any time here at all, or or uh, or assisting us to try to, you know, work ourselves out of the current situation that we're in. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, he does have a big interest in us up here, right? I think um, a lot of people have to realise um, there's, you know, two hundred seats in Australia, mm. so he's the prime minister. Of Australia, mm. okay. There's 200 seats, right? We've got two, yeah, right. That's that's the first part of it, and that's not the political thing. The issue then is how many of those 200 seats has he visited mm. as prime minister? Mm. And um, you could sort of say they're just as entitled mm. to say he doesn't care about their seat mm. as as we are. Then when you look at it as a state and mm. territory, um, yep. The, the territory is a big place that mm. that is, you know, in in the hands of the Commonwealth, really. But the majority of our funding comes through there. Yeah. Um, so, but he is one of a, a cabinet of what twenty five. Mm. He is not the one that makes final decisions on on everything that happens. Cabinet is, you know, the amalgamation of all of those people. Mm. We're constantly visited by ministers mm. from that cabinet. Um, you know, if the prime minister was here every time one of those ministers came and none yeah. of the other ministers, people would be critical mm. that the other ministers haven't been here. Mm. Um, I think we need to... So we need to try and put that into perspective. Mm. The fact that he doesn't come here, you need to say, well, you know, how many people are here compared to the rest of Australia and he does a lot of travelling? as well as overseas, so mm. it's a matter of time management. Um, 
The other issue, I think, is that we do have a lot of those 25-odd ministers mm. coming here all, all of the time. You know, we've had multiple visits. You know, so we've had three or four mm. ministers here since the election and there's another two or three will be here over the next month. Mm. And um, that, to me, shows that government does have an interest yeah. up here um, from a federal point of view. When you go down to Canberra and, um, you know, get meetings. I met with the Prime Minister, I think uh, it was not last Friday, the Friday before, right? Um, for over an hour. Um, so if he doesn't have an interest, he, yeah. he wouldn't meet with me. Yeah. Um, you know, every time I go down there, mm. you know, I'll always get with four or five ministers mm. a day, mm. and I'm not talking, you know, five-minute casual mm. conversation. You have some pretty in-depth conversations mm. with those people and, you know, they're quite au fait with our problems up here. They ask a lot of questions and um, they genuinely want to help. Mm. Um, you know, and the, the thing is you've got to say, well, okay, so you want the Prime Minister to come up here. What's, what's he going to do? You know, what do you want to achieve? I, I always just say you, you need something to achieve out of it. Um, he was here before the election. He's quite familiar with the territory. He, he you know, he knows the problems we've got. Um, you know, so what, what's the what's the problem with him? I mean, you know, when was the election? You know, it was sort of like what, five months ago. Um, but anyway, I'd, you know, he'll, he'll come when the opportunity arises and if, if there's a specific issue that needs to be in a, a, addressed or, you know, if we screw some money out of them, I suppose. Mm, but, mm. Um, yeah. Right. Pete, have you got any questions for uh, Gary before we let I've him go? Got one, I've got one question I'm dying to ask, Gary, <clears throat> and it comes off the back of Leon's question regarding... The fact that you know you haven't come in kicked heads like we may have expected, and you've got a very um, sensible attitude across the board to all this stuff. You you guys currently sit with two seats. In in less than twelve months, we've got an election. There's a whole lot of independents out there, and this new party that Terry's involved with. What's what's the likelihood or chance of uh, whether it's a reuniting of old CLP people or some sort of a joint coalition for me? Um, I, I can tell you I don't lose any sleep over it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm honest about that. The, um, I, always, I always think what you've got to do is, you know, sort out your own backyard first before you jump, jump a bit ahead. Um, so my concentration is on... Um, Winning my own seat, yes. that's the, the first thing. The, the second thing is trying to get the party to ensure that they pick the right people. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's been an issue of mine for the last three years, telling them, you know, how they've got to pick some people um, and, and what you need in those people. When you talk about people like uh, Terry, Robin, Kuzia, um, you know, plus any other independents that might come along, I get on with all of them um, and, you know, I, to some extent, I've said to some of them I would never insult them by actually asking them at this point would they be willing to form a coalition after after an election or or whatever. 
Um, and my view is that um, after an election, like, you know, if we didn't have the balance of power or even if we did have the balance of power, I think you still should look at those people that have got a lot of skills, a bit like, mm. you know, Jerry Wood says, you know, you, you can have different people there and um, what you've got to do is look at look at your own team and say, have they got the skills at the moment? They're going to be a lot of new politicians or, or are you going to need the help of, of some of these other other people? Um, you know, I, I, Terry forming his own party, I mean, he's um, got his own reasons for, for doing that. Robin Lamley is staying as, a, as an independent, but she is someone that, um, to me, would would quite easily come back to the CLP if she retains her seat after the after the next election. But I'm not, you know, I sort of that's just my view of of Robin. I'd I'd speak to these people quite often. Um, I meet with them before each sitting. Um, how the election pans out, I I don't know. The thing was that people wanted to get rid of the last government. Um, and that was very clear. People spoke to me. Gary, we really like you, but we just think those some of those people are idiots and we want to get rid of them. Um, you know, so, but I think I had a swing of about 1% against me or mm. slightly under 1%. Um, but the people didn't think who they were voting in. Mm. And, I, mm. and I think we ended up with some people that are probably not suited to political life and were um, had some expectations that couldn't be met um, once they got there. And uh, we've seen some of the, the chaos, if you want to use that word, with the Labor Party and members leaving, and it's no different to the, the previous CLP government. But I think people at this next election are going to be a bit more forward thinking. In other words, yep, we want to get rid of the current government, but who are we putting in in its place? So it'll be interesting to see how they vote. And I think a lot of that's going to depend on the level of the candidate that is there as opposed to which political party they're, they're with. You'll always have the standard people that will vote for Labor and you'll have the standard yep. people that will vote for CLP. But I think there's a hell of a lot more sitting in the middle nowadays that, you know, they maybe don't just want to get rid of the current government. They're going to look at their local member and say, well, are they any good and who, who's the person that's, that's been put up? Mm. If I hope that sort of answered the question in a roundabout way. Yeah, no, it does. It, uh, uh, there's perspectives there that I hadn't considered, so that, that's one point of view that's great about that answer. But I suppose, uh, as you say, in, until there's an election run and won, um, yep. it, it, you can't you can't sort of put the horse before the cart. That's right. And, and I, I, you know, people, you know, I've given you some of the relationships I've got with people that are there, they're mainly Labor people. But, you know, I've, I've known Kuzia for, you know, if I said nearly 30 years. Jerry Wood is married to a, a lady from the Daily River. So I've known Jerry almost as, almost as long. Um, you know, so Terry Mills took our kids to um, Indonesia um, when they were at school. You know, Rhonda, 
Rhonda's known Terry for quite a while as a as a teacher. So I mean, there's all these connections that are there. Um, you know, so after an election, you've got to see who's who's you know been elected and um, and what you do after that. How how yeah. you actually you know form a government for Territorians, but I can assure you, I won't form a government just to become the chief minister. It's not, it's not something that I came into politics for. It's a bit like, I suppose, like being the opposition leader. But anyway, <laughs> I'd just wait and see what what happens at the time. I think all you can do is do what you can do at the moment, and that is, you know, when people come into my office, I just see what I can do for them, and if I can't do anything, I tell them I can't do anything. So. Well, Gary, um, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been very Not interesting getting to know you. Uh, I, I say this at the end of every podcast, but honestly, it's really it's it's really good to know a person's story because then what they say you can put into context because you know the background that they've come from. Yep. Would you not agree with that, Pete? Oh yeah. Look, uh, it it's been interesting, particularly you know talking to a wide spectrum of people, but. Um, yeah, just listening to Gary's story, I, I just, as you say, it's so interesting listening to what's happened in people's lives that have got them to the point where they are, and you can you can quickly ascertain their, um, not just their background, but I guess their genuine nature behind that as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. A bit more than a mango farmer. Yeah, yeah, and also <laughs> a bit more than a soundbite on, on hey. TV, you know, so. Uh... Guess what? There's the um, there's the title for the podcast, Gary. A bit more than a mango farmer. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that, Pete. That's great. <laughs> All right, okay. Gary. Thanks very much. Not a problem. Thank Over you. Over to you, Pete. Thanks to Gary Higgins, the CLP leader and leader of the opposition. And we'll catch you again next week on the Boundless Possible podcast. You've been listening to the Boundless Possible podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. To listen to more episodes, search Boundless Possible podcast on all leading podcasting platforms.